This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Joyce, can you share some context to the original founding story of Double Dutch? So me and my twin sister were Dutch twins, hence our name Double Dutch. And as you might know, uh, the Netherlands, they actually invented gin in a couple of centuries ago. So we kind of grew up at the birthplace of gin. And with that, you still have lots of houses in the Netherlands and and in Flanders that have some kind of affiliation with that distilling history. And the house where we grew up in with our parents, we basically had a kind of a an alcohol license distillery in our back garden. Um, and our parents, they thought, what a fun thing, we'll keep it there. And started using that kind of as an excuse to every last Friday of the month, they would organize like tastings for friends with different types of wines and champagnes and Podcasts and tequilas and basically all kind of different type of, of spirits and, and uh, drinks. And so we kind of grew up knowing all the local distilleries, build up a big passion for any nice quality drinks. <laughs> um, and then when we were 18, guys and I moved to Antwerp to Belgium to study at university there. So studied both studied a bachelor and master in finance and economics. But during our years at university, we also loved the little party ourselves. So we organized every Tuesday and Thursday drinks at our place. And we had a deal with our friends that they would bring like a nice bottle of gin or a nice bottle of vodka or whatever it was that week. And Raisa uh, and I would make our own flavored soda waters in our kitchen. Some were delicious, some were absolutely disgusting, <laughs> but it was like a fun thing to do. And our friends called us the tonic twins. And it was just like something that we became like known for. Um, and I, I, at that point, we never really thought about doing something actually with it. We just thought it's fun. It's more fun than cooking or like doing dinners. We just had our own soft, soft drink flavors. Um, and then graduated and I started working for BNP Paribas in Brussels and Reise for a wealth management firm. But we were only 20. We were just 20 and we thought this is not yet for us. So we quit our jobs and moved to London to do a second master in tech entrepreneurship at UCL. And we came to London in 2014, just immediately were like in awe of the hospitality scene and you have the most beautiful membership clubs and beautiful speakeasy cocktail bars with so many different types of premium spirits. And that whole scene is just 10 or 15 years ahead of how we knew it from back in Belgium and the Netherlands. But choice of mixers were actually as limited as back home. And you had so many different types of spirits, but you had a premium tonic and a premium ginger ale and a less premium tonic and a less premium ginger ale. But that was basically it. So we, because our master was our, it was in technology entrepreneurship, the whole point was to kind of devote your year about a fintech ID. And so we went to UCL and said, can we not do it about the whole hospitality scene? It's really a passion um, because that's where we really think that we can, we have a great idea. And so we did. We wrote our dissertation about the fact that spirits are becoming so much more 
experimental. You have this whole premiumization, but choice of mixes are really lacking behind. Uh, it's all quite standardized and it's so focused on gin uh, that there must be more innovative, innovative flavors that combine with different types of spirits with your whole back bar. And so we graduated with our dissertation being a business plan about more healthy, innovative, flavorful tonic waters and mixers that were not just for gins, but also for vodkas and tequilas and rums and your whole back bar. And so that was kind of the concept of Double Dutch, did like a year of like market research with mixologists and consumers, did lots of tastings. I mean, it was quite fun. <laughs> then graduated and UCL gave us an award for best business plan of the year. And with that, they gave us 10,000 pounds to like start the business and a year of the office space and like some incentives. So we thought, why not? Let's try it. At 10,000 pounds was gone quicker than we thought. <laughs> um, but we produced our first batch with it. So launched with our cucumber watermelon and our pomegranate basil mid-2015. Um, and then built the business from there. Uh, so what was your first product? It's our first product for two flavors. So we had a, which is still actually our cucumber watermelon. It's still our most popular flavor that we have in our range. And our pomegranate basil. So both were not tonic waters or or not tonic waters, they're still, they're very much uh, flavored soda waters. And so the cucumber watermelon was a bit more fruity, a bit sweeter, and a pomegranate basil is a bit more herbal. And we thought we want to see what the market prefers. A pomegranate basil was more for herbal gins and tequilas, and a cucumber watermelon we developed more for like London dry style gins and for more spritzers and vodkas. But still, one of, both are very popular, but a cucumber watermelon is still the most popular flavor. Yeah, it's, it's probably my favorite. It's interesting how you chose to go with that that flavor first rather than just a simple Indian tonic. Yeah, we actually, we never thought, or when we wrote our business plan for Double Dutch and we, it was never about normal tonic waters or ginger beers or like the standard range. We always thought to just launch uh, flavored soda waters that were completely different from what there was on the market really have our unique double dutch kind of flavor pairings that were developed on like for more versatility to make cocktails easier for bars um, and to make like experimentation easier without making it complicated but then as we evolved we just noticed like the traits they loved the more innovative flavors but they still want your premium tonic water and a premium soda and a premium lemonade. So we kind of developed from there that our customers said like, oh, love your two new flavors, but we really also need a normal Indian tonic. And if we are working with Double Dutch anyway, then why would we buy a normal tonic from another uh, brand? And so then that's how we evolved to like also having the uh, a delicious standard range of mixers. Whereas you almost lead with the, the kind of your niche cucumber watermelon flavors and then you can add on more standard premium tonic. Yeah. Which stops the, stops the, stops the bartender going to buy, you know, Fever Tree or Fentimans or, or whatever other brand. Yeah, exactly. So we, uh, Double Dutch is very much about our flavors, <sighs> what, what makes us unique, uh, what people know Double Dutch about. But then we also actually have the most awarded standard Indian tonic water and the most awarded ginger beer. And so that is always what we replace current offering with, and then they add uh, flavors that are unique to Double Edge. So what, this might be a stupid question, but what, what's actually the difference between soda water and, and tonic water then in terms of the process? It's not necessarily the process. It's more the key ingredients. So a tonic water always have quinine in there. And quinine is kind of the bitter aftertaste that makes 
a tonic water or tonic water. So what really, yeah, what you recognize in tonic waters. And Indian tonic waters need to have a minimum amount of quinine to call it um, an Indian tonic water. But the tonic water always has quinine and flavored soda waters are, yeah, soda waters, spring water and, and added flavoring to it without any quinine or bitter elements. And so are they easier to make, soda water easier to make than tonic water then? Or is it similar? No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, so we, maybe how we work or our recipe development is always based on molecular pairings. So that's also why all our flavors are always double flavored. So we look at our recipe development a bit more from a scientific point of view. So we look at ingredients and then kind of look on how uh, the molecules and what the molecules are of different ingredients. And we match ingredients that have at least 75% of uh, molecules in similarity. So for example, cucumber and watermelon, it's actually coming from the same family. And so that is how we do all the recipe development, also our tonic waters. Um, but tonic water is always led by quinine, which is basically an, e an ingredient like any other. Like if we add, we just have a pink grapefruit that we launched um, and pink grapefruit is the main ingredient, which is then being we're adding some Tahitian lime and we're adding some other flavors with an Indian tonic water. It's led by quinine. And then we add a little bit of juniper berries, a little bit of grapefruit as well. So it's just kind of matching uh, to create delicate, uh, beautifully paired pairings. Well, how unique do you think the ingredients are? What is it that makes it unique about that process? Because I guess everyone, you know, Fentiments, I was reading London Essence earlier and like, there's, like, there's so many brands out there now that have a similar you know, unique ingredients i go to africa to find the quinine or whatever i get that what do you think makes it really differentiated i think with double dutch so on the one hand side uh we are a whole range is low in calories and sugars so most of our competitors they have a light range and a standard range we don't have two ranges all our range is naturally low in calories and in sugars because we try to use sweeter fruit that adds some sweetness so that we don't need to add that much of um, sugar to it. Then our flavor combinations are very much, we are always flavor first, not tonic plus. So lots of our competitors or most of our competitors, they focus a lot on having a tonic with a hint of flavor, a tonic with a hint of a Mediterranean flavor profile. We are always flavor and then maybe add a hint of tonic or quinine in there. So we are more flavored soda, let. Um, and then I think just as a brand, we are distinctively different we have an authentic story behind um, our products and behind our story we are much more vibrant we also have different consumers so i think it's a combination of our products and our flavors are actually very different to what there is on the market we focus a lot on different type of uh, spirits not white spirit led we have a cranberry and ginger that works really well with cognacs for example we just launched category first cocktail soda so we have a sparkling bloody mary soda and a sparkling margarita cucumber soda uh, so it's on the one side our flavors our recipe development and then i think uh, our brand where we associate with uh, and how we um, get perceived by consumers how, how would you describe your target consumer versus typical competitors so our target consumer is our actual consumer, both online and from retail data, is about seven to ten years younger than our main competitors. Um, so we have a different aged audience, but also they engage in different interests 
So what our core audience is, it's very much a vibrant young consumer. We say between 28 and 40 years old is our core, core audience, but very much an audience that is a little bit more affluent, lives in metropolitan cities, is looking for experimental foods and drinks without making it complicated and uh, yeah, vibrant, fun. Let the, the party starting. That's what it looks like on the website as well. Colors and flavors, party. <laughs> How have you seen the, I guess, the challenges in sourcing ingredients or glass and, and, and products um, over the last 12 months, given the challenges in the market? Yeah, I think cost price increases has definitely been absolutely incredible. I think first the logistic and like shipping costs of containers where we've seen containers to the US that used to be two, three thousand dollars a container. We've seen them as high as $12,000 a container, which is, I mean, incredible, but it's now finally and luckily balancing out back to like more uh, affordable prices. And then obviously in the past six to, to eight months, we've seen such high glass prices, increase in uh, raw materials, in our ingredients. I think it's challenging and it's challenging times for lots of businesses like Double Dutch, but I think the... Yeah, the overall thing is that everybody is in the same situation. This is not business specific to Double Dutch. It's everybody in our category and in our industry seeing the same uh, cost increases. And with that, it's also more than normal that we need to forward a part of those costs to our consumers and to our customers. And that's then what we're seeing in inflation. Yeah, it's challenging, but I think we are all in the same kind of situation. And it, it, we are also seeing quite some positive positive trends and positive outlook on some parts where we're seeing cost prices go slightly down again. Um, so I think it's about um, yeah, running the business in, a, in an efficient way at the moment. Suck it up. Have you, have you passed on costs to retail price yet or this year? We did very minimal this year, but we will um, pass on some of the costs for next year. Otherwise, it's just not sustainable anymore. I mean, glass cost is just incredible from the gas prices and yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's incredible we anticipated and forecasted some price increases but nothing close to what it actually have you locked in those glass projects you have to kind of buy forward then do you have to buy like the whole year of glass up front pretty much for next year given the uncertainty yeah exactly um and that's a good thing because it also kind of locks in our prices so we have a good cash flow forecast and we know how our margins are going to evolve in the next 12 months for sure uh, on the stock levels that we have. So in a way that's, we're quite confident on that part. So, you know, we, you produce these interesting flavors, cucumber, watermelon, you know, soda waters. How did you first think about going to market and distributing the product? Um, so when we just launched, we very much knew that we wanted to focus on the premium on-trade, like bars, restaurants, and hotels, very much focused on like such a niche little port in London, started focusing on Mayfair, have like all the night and visited basically like 20 bars and restaurants every day, showing our products and kind of then ventured out from there bar to bar. Um, so Entrez has always been super important and I definitely believe that that's where you build the brand, where you create experiences for consumers that then start to recognize the brand and other really nice places and then they go to retailers and ask for the product to enjoy at home. So that is definitely our 
how to market in every country and how we start. And I think at the beginning, the biggest challenge was that in the UK, they don't, bars and restaurants are the entree, they don't buy from suppliers directly. They only buy via wholesalers, which is route to market. For wholesalers, obviously, they don't want to buy directly. Um, they don't want to list and stock products that don't have customers yet. So it's such a chicken, chicken and the egg. Um, but then we got our first wholesaler, gave them oh, very good terms in terms of payment and consolidation and those kind of things and consignments. Um, and that kind of helped us to get our first customers on board um, and really helped us to build the brand in the on-trade. So we focused a lot on premium high-end on-trade in the first two, three years and then went into retail uh, and a bit more accessible mainstream on-trade. Mm. Well, and so when you go to like a wholesale like Matthew Clark or some of the big ones in the UK, like, you know, what do you, what, what do you say is your sales pitch to them, because I guess they also hold or carry all of the brands as well. So what's the... I think it's two-sided. I think on the one hand side, we need to work as closely as we can and push as closely as we can to the their customers. So our sale is always to your really nice bar, your nice hotel, nice restaurant, and then they buy from Matthew Clark and then we make sure that they can buy the whole range from Matthew Clark. And I think that is on the one hand side, that's the business model. You need to be able to give Matthew Clark the distribution business, but we need to do the work and get the hotel and or bar or restaurant to buy Double Dutch via Matthew Clark. And then I think on the other side, it's building up relationships with sales reps at Matthew Clark, with head office, making sure that we are uh, a tonic partner for them that works in a nice way where we can build relationships where I don't know. Yeah, it's, I think it's a combination of giving giving enough margins for them, being flexible in terms of delivery, stock holding, those kind of things. Um, so I think it's definitely both-sided, but our sales team is always very much, we do the sale to the bar and the restaurant and hotel, and then the wholesaler comes in and does the distribution and, and is the route to market on that side. What's been the biggest challenge distributing you know via wholesalers to, to on-prem these high-end prem accounts with hotels like Savoy or Dorchester here in London like what's the biggest challenge I think the biggest challenge probably is that um, it's quite a contracted industry so you have lots of the yeah lots of on-trade accounts have one to three year contracts with their spirit partner but also with their tonic and mixer partner and I think on the one hand side, that obviously gives opportunities because if you get the contract, then you're locked in with certain volumes for the next two years or year or how long the contract is. But on the other hand, there it's quite a locked market. So you need to build relationships and keep pushing your brand to buyers who are still locked in with another brand. So it's a it's quite a lengthy process and it's not that you can that if um a big hotel group says, oh, we're in contract until um, mid-2024 that we don't need to be involved with that buyer for the next 18 months. You need to like keep them warm and you need to stay on top of mind. And so it's quite, um, it's yeah, labor intensive to un- to kind of understand where the how the market is looking, what are the open opportunities, what are the closed opportunities, and then making sure that you're there um, when they're revisiting their their contracts. And so, do you 
is it Matthew Clark commits for you to with for two three years to to kind of buy a certain amount of volume? No, it's no. So it's very much the uh, bar or the hotel group or the restaurant group. It's very much the entree that we sign contracts with and that sign contracts with other brands. And then Matthew Clark really is the um, the route to market, and they make sure they definitely help and they will say, oh, uh, this group is 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 opening up their contracts in X amount of weeks or you should speak with the buyer or they would maybe suggest a brand and they would say, oh, we absolutely love this brand. You should talk with them. And I think it's definitely, it's we all work together, but it's very much the contacts are between the brands and the on-trade accounts. So you have salespeople that you have to go out and, and kind of warm up the mixologists and, you know, Get, get friendly with them and you know and two years later when they're when they're renegotiating the contract it's like you know remember <laughs> yeah and um, so how do you think about curating your pitch to the mixologist then and how that's evolved over the last you know few years given the growth in premium mixers I, I think it starts with uh, quality of product with doing blind taste things. I think we are very, are, we're very proud that we've won lots of awards with great institutions like IWSC. We've won gold multiple years with the Claws Awards, with Bartenders Awards. So I think that kind of gives a credibility and being able to say, for example, so house uh, uses double dutch exclusively in all their houses. Uh, Arts Club uses double dutch exclusively in all houses and having Oka, Zuma, like really nice, great groups that have decided to list Double Dutch exclusively over any other brand kind of gives a credibility and a showcase model that our products are really good. Then obviously blind tastings. Uh, we are always super, super happy and confident to do blind tastings. And then it's about the brand itself. What we can we do? How can we support more than any other brand? How can we work together actively that helps the restaurant bar or hotel, but also helps Double Dutch? Uh, and I think it's more going into a partnership and see what are they looking for, what can we offer, and how can we really build like long-term relationships together. But take, take Zuma, I think you mentioned Zuma. So what was it from, for them that made them sign an exclusive contract with you? What did they love? They love the flavors, <laughs> um, but I also think they love the brand. I think with Double Dutch, we're in a really nice spot where we are obviously not the incumbent, but we have a really, but we are also not, we are the bigger, smaller brands that are available. So we have a really good uh, proof point showcase uh, model of other uh, bars and restaurants that have stocked double edge, that have seen really good successes, high rate of sale on electronics and mixers. And you won't see us everywhere, but you see us in the really nice places around London or the UK or, or in Europe. Um, and so I think it's a combination on one side, absolutely loved our flavors, <laughs> loved the uh, brand and what's behind it. Uh, for example, we just became 100% carbon neutral. We're low in sugars and calories. So that's really important for lots of bars and restaurants to have that natural element in, in kind of health conscious, um, for health conscious consumers. And then the fact that we do have an authentic story behind the product, I think it does resonate more and more, especially after COVID, people want to see who's behind the product. We can do like masterclasses. We can do like marketing activations. And I think it's like a combination of, of lots of aspects. How, how much does price matter at that end of the market? I think it's a important point out of many other points, but 
obviously every bar uh, restaurant or hotel wants to make as much money as they can um and i think it's a it's a balance on what do you want to obviously we are a premium product you can ask more for a double dutch than other uh, mixer brands so it's a combination of we actually give higher cash margins to bars and restaurants but our cost price is also higher so we focus on really uh, while we have a higher price point, we focus on giving higher margins to bars and restaurants. And we also have the proof, um, like the data that shows that that the entree can ask more for Double Dutch than other brands without losing volume. So it's a balance on giving higher margins, giving higher cash per serve and, and get to a balance where consumers want to pay slightly more for a more premium product that they can't buy in Aldi or whatever. Hmm. Well, and how do you think about price positioning for you, given that you are operating in the high, high end of restaurants, hotels? How do you how do you price versus you know Fever Tree or Fentiment or some of the other players? How do you think about that? I think most premium mixers in the UK are on a similar level, and we are all very much in an it's an affordable everyday luxury. So while we are sitting on a premium or ultra premium level, we're talking per bottle 30 to 50 pence more expensive than the non-premium bottle. So it's not, I mean, we are very much a premium product and absolutely that's the space that we play in, but it's not compared in terms of unit cost and in terms of cash it's very it's a super easy way to premise for a bar and restaurant as well because you have uh, a mid-level spirit you want to offer a unique premium serve have a premium double dutch cucumber and watermelon added with a mid-level for example gin you can ask high a higher price because you are premising in a very easy way it's not that we are sitting at a super ultra premium cognac level where you're paying 600 pounds bottle like we are yeah it's very affordable luxury and yeah so i think that helps that, that's why it's so exciting right i think that's why it's so nice to this category where it's almost like everyone can afford a premium mixer exactly. you know and, and, and it's a it's a cheap way to premise your surf and to premise your drinking experience so, so do you actually see it's interesting because in my mind, I always thought, okay, yeah, the, the bars obviously want to have, I don't know, if you've got Monkey 47 or some higher end gins and, you you know, you want to obviously premiumize the whole experience. But actually, you could do that with a standard gin, you know, and, and actually earn more margin. So do you see bars actually changing the way they mix up the spirits and the mixers? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think what we are definitely seeing is there is much more uh, experimentation and it's not necessarily indeed your standard gin with a more premium flavor. But what we see is people are like bars and restaurants use a dry Chardonnay wine add or cranberry and ginger and a dash of a bitter and you actually have a really innovative unique cocktail spritz serve but it's actually just two ingredients it's easy to make your standard gin and tonic in terms of margins it's actually higher in margins so it's not ne it's not necessarily anymore that we only sit in that premium gin premium tonic space it's much wider than that and i think that is great have a I don't know, a limoncello and our double lemon, great, super summery, 
really refreshing. I absolutely love it. And it's super easy to make, but you, it's not something that you're seeing everywhere. Um, so I think that's also an easy way to, to premise your syrups. And also, I guess you, you're leading with sodas. So I guess it's kind of also a bit different maybe than some of the other brands. It's more experimental. Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely focus on that more versatility and easy experimentation without without the need of needing five different ingredients, but still having a unique serve. I didn't realize you had a double lemon for the... I'll, I'll, after the interview, I'll send you a whole range, then you can try them all. So that, uh, I mean, that was, I went to Italy this summer and <laughs> was drinking lemon chata like <laughs> every day. So, I mean, so how, how do you think about working with spirit brands then to distribute? I think um, it's absolutely necessity for a brand like ours. I think, there are so many complementary activations and stuff that you can do with spirit brands or, or non-alcoholic um, spirit brands because we're so complementary to each other. They need a mixer. We need a spirit. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. And I think there are, it's amazing to work with the bigger companies, but it's also great to work with smaller distilleries. And I think there's space for every every collaboration in different channels and, and different and, and different sites, whether that's off-trade or events or on-trade. Well, and, and those spirit brands, because I, I remember seeing Fever Tree Market as an advertisement with, I think, Bel Belvedere or Grey was one of them. So I guess they don't, that doesn't stop them working with you or, or someone else, right? They, they could work with many different mixers if they, for different flavors or experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we work with many different gym brands and many different vodka brands and and lots of, um, and the spirit brands do the same. They might have an activation in the on-trade with a specific mixer brand, but then work with another mixer brand for events or whatever it is, or in different countries, they have other relationships. So I think it's an open space. And I think that's also the nice thing about it there is no exclusivity needed because both sides we also don't want to complicate our customers if a bar has double dutch exclusively exclusively and they work with a specific gym brand of another gym brand and we'll work that day with one brand and the other day with another brand and i think it's just holding good relationships so that we all build and help each other in the long term so I, I recently saw that Heineken also took a stake in, in, in your business, which, which, which seems great. How has that changed your growth or position in, in the market with such a great brand behind you? So it's the family Heineken and Michelle de Cavallo. Um, and it's amazing, absolutely fantastic. I think uh, for us, we could not have wished for better investors. I think it's amazing on strategic advice distribution advice i think there's obviously an amazing like brand fit on like touch heritage and female led and yeah i think it's it's amazing michelle de cavallo has been super supportive yeah strategically wise and distribution wise and so in some countries like for example in the netherlands heineken is our distributor in australia our distributor but that doesn't mean that we are always with them in distribution uh partnerships it depends a bit per country and per per region can you not just use Heineken like globally, like so, I don't know, in Asia or some of these? I mean, they're everywhere, Heineken, right? It's a... uh, yes, but we also need to focus on our growth and like we can't do it all all at once. 
Well, it's, it's always more surprising seeing Heineken, you know, in the most random places in in the world. It's, so it's it's pretty cool that you guys could have potentially get access to that if you, if and when you need. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's an incredible brand. It's probably the most impressive brand uh, globally. So, how, how do you compare the UK market on premise distribution versus the Europe? Just broadly, how you found in terms of growth and challenges and competition? Um, I think it's super interesting. I think the UK is definitely very much ahead of many countries or most countries in Europe, I'd say. I think the the nice thing in... in the UK is huge in on-trade uh, accounts. What is really, for a brand like Double Dutch and others, other brands is... It's great that there that it's quite a good balance within independent and groups, and you have your really nice cocktail bars that are independent, and your really nice little boutique hotels. But then you also have your mid-sized pub groups that have 30 accounts under a headquarter, to as big as a Green King or a Michelin Butler. And so the the natural evolution of a brand on how to build in the on-trade, there is such massive potential and I think for example with Double Dutch we haven't even tapped in where I haven't tapped on such a big market on like for example the Green Kings and the Michelin Butlers and the Stone Gates and so there are there's a lot of opportunities to go after I think premiumization is also huge like so many bars and restaurants have premium bottle tonic waters the gun is definitely something that is almost behind us Gin and tonics obviously are huge in uh, the UK, so that whole spirits mixer serve is something that is really baked into culture and into menus, uh, standard menus in the UK. And I think there is also what what's nice on the UK is that you have more brands, and obviously you have the incumbent and you have the main players, but then you have smaller brands that educate the market that make consumers more uh, experimental about different types of flavor combinations. So I think the UK is an extremely interesting on-trade market. And if you look at like other markets, like for example, Belgium and the Netherlands, you have much less groups available. So it's very much building the on-trade from bar to bar, restaurant to restaurant takes longer. You have less brands available, which sometimes is a good thing, but it also there is one incumbent who really owns the market, so it's a bit less open for new players. Um, but then on the other hand, if you look in, into Europe, that whole mix, if you look at premium spirits, uh, percentage of all spirits, and the premium mixer percentage of all mixes available, in the UK, in the UK that gap is closer to each other, while in Europe there is still so much to go after that you see there's so much more premium spirits of market share in spirits than the premium mixers in market share of mixers that you do that you do know that there is such a potential to still go after and it's a growing market but yeah it's different it's very different and i think wholesalers for example in the uk everything is the whole route to market is via wholesalers in the uk that's not necessarily the case in other countries in europe so uh, yeah it's all different but yeah interesting yeah it's it's almost, you know, sometimes it can, 
Well, sometimes it can help having incumbents or, or other premium mixers because the kind of bar, the bar mixologists understand the value and you know it's, it's kind of easier to convey. You know, where sometimes if it's fresh, you're just like I'm going to start from step one. <laughs> true, true, absolutely, yeah. Well, I, and you mentioned how this the European difference between you know premium premium spirit penetration and mixer penetration. I think here in the UK it's crazy. It's like fifty percent value mixed by premium mixers, Europe is lower. Is there any reason in your mind why that won't, why the Europe cannot get to the same level as UK? Whether there's a reason why Europe wouldn't go to that same level? Yeah, as the UK in terms of premium mixer penetration. No, I think, no, because I think you need to look at the premium spirit penetration and if consumers in Europe are willing to where 40, I'm just saying, I think it's about 35%. 35% of spirits are premium in Europe. Then why would they spend so much money on a premium product and then mix it with a low-end mixer and, and or tonic water? I think that gap, that's just education. And I think it's the job of premium spirit brands and premium mixer brands to kind of educate the market that that doesn't make sense. If you spend... 60 pounds on a bottle of gin and you're going to mix it with a really low-end tonic water, I mean, that does not make sense whatsoever. And we are, Europe is also very much spirit mixer uh, market. It's not that 80% of spirits that are being drank here in Europe are cognacs on on the rocks. That, that's, that's not the culture that we live in here. So, uh, I I only think that that gap is just gonna really close to each other. If premium spirits market share just gets the same market share as, as premium tonic waters. Do you use the gun in in Netherlands in Belgium? Is it just the soda gun? Is that is or is it more Schweppes in a bottle? Yeah, it's more. I mean, the gun is very very unlikely to be seen. <laughs> um, but you have more like uh, just like standard uh, tonic waters. Just standard yeah, Schweppes. Schweppes yeah, yeah, the Schweppes. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no gun in, there's no, that's more of a US, US thing. Yeah, that's you. You were in LA uh, a couple of months ago to launch there and you have the most amazing, premium, cool, trendy bars that are so they look so affluent and I mean, they're amazing and the interior is with lots of gold and mirror and like so premium and then you ask a gin tonic and it costs $28 and they get it out of the gun. <laughs> it's incredible. That's amazing. That's also a huge opportunity, right? And you talk about that premium mix of penetration. I think it's like 5% in the US. Yeah, true. So premium spirits is close to thirty uh, percent, and premium mixes is at about six percent. Yeah. So yeah, that doesn't make sense, and hundred percent that will catch up on its on itself. But it just needs a lot of education in market and a lot of investment. And I think that the good thing is is that the bigger brands are investing also lots of time in educating that market, which will eventually help benefit us as well. For sure. Yeah. Do you see the, the way mixologists or bartenders um, approach premium mixes differ in Europe or Netherlands versus the UK in terms of how they mix stuff or what they love taste-wise or is there any difference difference in the kind of different cultures? Uh, yeah, I think different type of preferences in, like for example, I think pink gins that was like a thing in the UK for like a while that everybody wants to have a pink gin. 
I don't think that that ever really was a thing or I've never really seen it in in Europe or maybe in Spain it was, but not in Belgium and the Netherlands, for example. Uh, so I think those kind of preferences <laughs> are different. A soda water that doesn't exist in Europe, like or like the, just the soda water that you mix with vodka, you, you do it with sparkling water. Like soda water is not a thing. Lots of people in Belgium and Netherlands don't even know what a soda water is. They just think it's, yes, sparkling water. <laughs> I think like, for example, like a lemonade, a clear lemonade, that's also very, very British to mix that with spirits. That's not something that we see in Europe. Uh, so I think that's just like more taste and like cultural products that we know that are different here than than they are maybe in the uk but in general the gin and tonic is obviously like a key uh yeah a key serve in in, in lots of parts yeah it's interesting how you don't have a lem- you don't mix lemonade it's more like you have a base of lemon right or, or and different flavors yeah, yeah too we, we just launched a refreshing lemonade which is a clear lemonade um and we um introduced this to us to our partners in in europe and so many just didn't Get it? They're like, huh, but you're making like a premium Sprite or premium 7-Up. Like, what are you trying to, <laughs> what are you trying to achieve here? <laughs> but I've never understood the bitter lemon, which I think is like more of a European thing, right? Is that what they mix it with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tui, tui. The bitter lemon is like more, uh, yeah. Like the lemonade, European lemonade. <laughs> so, I mean, when you look at distribution and in, in on-premise in the UK, what do you think so... What's like the biggest problem you're trying to solve or the biggest hurdle you're trying to get over like today in, in scaling distribution? Gosh, I think so many and so, <laughs> um, so many things to be done. Um, I think the, one of the biggest hurdles is definitely getting um, getting new new groups, getting them out of context, getting them to step over from a current product that they're using to switch over to double-edge. Um, getting in front of the right buyers, buyers move all the time, you build up a really good relationship and then finally their contract is up for renewal and it appears that they left the business two weeks ago and then now with another hotel group that is stuck for another three years. (laughs) So I think it's like kind of having a good road, it's important to have a good roadmap of the opportunities available and where um yeah where can we get successes in the short term where are the long-term successes uh kind of finding a balance there and then i think it's more about really getting the brand out there um just driving distribution further to them drive brand awareness and finding a balance where i think the own trade is looking for a brand that they know that they can that they have no risk in switching from the incumbent to a newer brand and they know that the rate of sale will be at least as high or higher, but they still they are still looking for a brand that is not widely available and they still expect the brand to not be in the main retailers. And so I think it's a balance in having a niche and more exclusive product, but still being having that brand awareness and having the distribution um, that we're looking for. Yeah, because I guess now with, with the penetration of pyramixes, at least in the UK, you you have to really displace a brand. You have to get rid of Fever Tree or Fenderman's or London Essence and say, we got a better flavor, unique flavor, yeah, mix it with more stuff. And you also have a brand and, and some retail presence, which is a difficult balance to get. Yeah. Well, and so how did you think about growing in the, in, in the grocery channel? I've been looking up, 
try to find it in Tesco and, and, and Sainsbury's over there, but I think you're in Waitrose. I think I've seen it in Waitrose. Yeah, so we've always been in Waitrose for like a couple of years now. We actually just launched in Tesco and are also just launching in Asta later in the year. Uh, and then we're in Ocado and Amazon, uh, Boots Up North, um, and, re- and like department stores like uh, Selfridges uh, and Fort Mason. Um, I think retail has become so much more important than I think as every other brand of the COVID. Retail is just, you want to have a, on the one hand side, you want to have retail destinations for your consumers to enjoy at home. And on the other hand, not be, uh, yeah, have a good split between off-trade and, and on-trade so that you, if we ever go back to some kind of pandemic or lockdown or whatever, that you have a, a healthy split and, and not, dependent on one channel or the other um so i definitely think that retail is really important and i think it's there are lots of retailers that are also supportive for new brands and lots of opportunities there i think on the online i really believe in that and i think the nice thing is that you can like target very specifically your audience on what you want them to see what you want them to focus on when when getting in front of your product so i think retail is definitely a very good growth opportunity for double dutch but it seems like you focused a lot on the e-commerce place was that just from covid post-covid you went amazon ocado straight away or was that pre um yeah so e-commerce in during covid was really really good for us and we basically from day one when we went into lockdown about 70 percent of our revenues came from on trade so we thought, oh my God, this is going to be the biggest nightmare ever. But actually immediately just saw that all revenues that we lost in the on-trade were uh, switched to Amazon and consumers that would buy Double Dutch in their favorite pub or in their favorite bar would just buy Double Dutch online without really putting too much effort on that whole online thing. And that, that kind of we realized that on the one hand side, there is really a that is a strong brand and we have loyal customers and we didn't really expect that but that uh, so with that i think it was really interesting learning um and i think online is super important but i also definitely believe in like your tesco and your waitros and your asda and people aren't just strolling through the shelves see a new product they'll try it they'll buy it and then hopefully they'll convert um so i think it's a mix of both but yeah, I think also now in like uncertain times and inflation, people are gonna probably drink maybe a little bit more at home again. And then a premium mixer and like a new brand like Double Dutch kind of that's like a really luxury, small indulgence, affordable, but still nicer than your standards. It's a nice category, right? Where you can kind of claim like you can play the premium end on premise and like the nice bars, but then you can also have like a little <laughs> indulgent of buying it in, in the supermarket. So take Tesco for example, just just as an example. Like, what is that? What is what is the pitch to Tesco today? Then, given that I mean, they probably have you know a bunch of different and their own also private label stuff that I'm assuming they're starting to do now as well. Absolutely, um, I think yeah. The pitch is is that they are looking at that category. They want to expand into get that category because more consumers are going into. Um, are going into premium mixers and they're seeing growth in uh, more innovative flavors. So a buyer in general makes a decision, okay, I'm happy to invest more in that kind of shelf space. 
And then they go out and look for new brands. And then they absolutely love Double Dutch and they decide to stop Double Dutch. <laughs> um, and I think for us, it's what we are seeing is that we are attracting a new consumer audience. It's not necessarily an audience that uh, already bought into the category before. So we're making the pie bigger rather than just taking from other brands in our category. Um, and then trying to get like new consumers on board by doing promotions and activations and doing sampling campaigns and um, yeah, working together to drive more footfall and more revenues to retailers. But and so it's almost like do, do you do you actually grow the premium mix of penetration then for for the for the grocers because you could actually introduce new younger consumers than Fever Tree or older brands. That's definitely the the idea for sure. And, and where do you sit in the what's the kind of shelf space you're getting because your soda water is it is it a different than tonic or is it the same? No, so we sit in the with other mixtures and other other tonic waters. So it's like one that's kind of the. Do you, do you see that extending in the in the, in the grocery then? Like are they kind of taking a share from other other Schweppes or whatever? You see a little bit more like going from soft things. Cordials, mixers, tonic waters are all now kind of into like this more fluid shelf. And also it depends a bit store per store and, and, and supermarket per supermarket. But I think you do see more towards that that is all kind of, and then you have the RTDs and the... It's a weird mix, right? Like that whole category, that whole section of the store is like a very fluid, it's almost, yeah... How do you think about that? How do you think about that? How it's going to evolve over the next five years with RTDs and the innovation? I mean, some of the CPD stuff you could see. Um, I definitely think that consumers are more educated than ever about, I think on the one hand side, that whole craft movement, first from beers to spirits and I think that education, you'll never take that away anymore from consumers and people are saying our oh, gins are going down. That's perfectly possible. And maybe in five to 10 years, people don't drink gin as much anymore, but you can't take away that massive education and that experimentation that has happened in the past couple of years where people wanted to have a new bottle of craft gin from a new distillery every month and they were looking into rhubarb gin and saffron gin and lobster taste gin and I think that kind of evolution has happened and has been really is a thing that you can't take that away and I think with that you see that consumers are just more open to to go into new categories and go in a more experimental way. And I think that's not just in spirits. You see that in dairy products and in milk and they want oat milk and they don't want oat milk anymore. They don't want coconut milk anymore. They now want God knows dairy-free different whatever milk. I think that is just, it's a whole, I think consumers are just becoming much more experimental and they don't, they are not satisfied anymore with the, standard how they knew it like 10 years ago so i think with that you're gonna we're gonna see much more new different things as in started with non-alcoholic gins and then non-alcoholic rtds now non-alcoholic aperol like everything consumers want more and more choice and they want it more different but they want to go back to ease easiness and ease of serve they are not looking as like maybe five years ago where they want 
to, to make a gin and tonic with seven different fruits in there. And it was like a bowl with a strawberries and mint and thyme and rosemary and whatever. They just want a really nice, easy white wine and cucumber watermelon, easy to make. And it's very different and they haven't tasted it before. And it's something that they can show to their friends. And it's a little bit restaurant experience, but easy, easy, easy. And I think with that... I believe in RTDs and I think there is definitely, it's a different occasion than premium mixers because it's quicker, easier. It's probably more on the go, but I think people are looking for like easy, innovative, fun RTDs that they can quickly take a can of on when they're from home, from work back home on the train or whenever it is. But I definitely think in RTDs are going to grow. I think those Cock that cocktail ready to make cocktails really like espresso espresso martinis in a can and those that are have really high quality I definitely think that people really like that I think different flavors new flavors flavor combinations that are not your standard passion fruit and apple or your rhubarb apple but your I don't know. I think user is not even innovative anymore. Like people are just looking for new innovative flavors that are not standard. That's not what they've been drinking in the past five years, but they are looking for, for easy, yeah, easy ways of, of having an, an innovative drink. I've always wondered why there's no RTD. I think it's perfect for like a brand like yours or, or Fever Tree or whatever to have, you know, whether you partner with a nice spirit company you know, Grey Goose, Double Dutch, little RTD would be pretty cool. I'll let you know if we're looking into it. Look, Joyce, this has been great. Um, I mean, last couple of questions, just, you know, I know there's obviously lots of innovation in, in this category. What are you most excited about in terms of new, entering new space? I know you mentioned the kind of cocktail mixer space you rent, you've recently entered. What What is the most interesting or exciting new new part of the fluid category you're entering what can i say uh, <laughs> no, i think there's lots of interesting uh, new categories i'm just very excited about the fact that the, that the whole drinking experience category is expanding and that people are not just going for your standard gardens and swaps people are looking for premised products people are looking for i think non and low abv no abv i think that is a growing market that's only going to become more interesting as well um yeah i think there's so many things in our category that i'm that i think are exciting and that we're also never going to go into i think for example that like the healthier energy market i think is super interesting i mean there's so many innovation that we're seeing now and new brands that have the opportunity to 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 enter markets um yeah what worries you what keeps you up at night about growth in UK or Europe? Cash. I think cash always worries every uh, entrepreneur. You're telling me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, no, I think the market is growing. There are more opportunities. So there's nothing that really worries me. I think it's just really uh, driving distribution, uh, focus bar per bar, and uh, building a good team that's able to, to help uh, help with growth spots. But nothing on the consumer side. You're not worried about like consumer taste changing or like gin. This being like a kind of, not a fad, but like, you know, being because of gin and, and when gin dies out, maybe this is not, you know, as attractive. Yeah, anymore. I think if, if it comes to that, then I think a company like Double Dutch is in a, probably in a better position than maybe other bigger corporate brands because we're able to 
switch quickly, try new kind of categories, try new products. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not, it doesn't take uh, eight months and millions of pounds to try a new product. Uh, I think we are in a lean way of where we can easily experiment.